0: Section 2 of Industrial Conspiracies by Clarence S. Darrow This LibriVox recording is in the Public Domain. Part 2 In the first place, how many of us understand our system of government? We hear people talk about it on the fourth day of July, and they run for office in the fall, the most glorious system ever invented by the wit of man. I want to say that it is about the craziest system that was ever conceived in the brain of man. Our system of government never was conceived in the brain of man, because no man or combination of men were ever foolish enough and weak enough to conceive them. It is a system of blunders. If you would elect for the next hundred years a president as wise as Roosevelt, you could not move a peg. Let me just tell you why. Suppose we want to pass the law. As I have said, we pass little fool laws, and nobody pays much attention to them. They don't hurt anybody, and they let them go. But suppose we want to pass a law of substance. If there is any such thing as a law of substance, suppose we want to do it, something affecting fundamental rights. Now, how are we going to get at it? One hundred and twenty-five years ago and more, a body of men, very wise for their day and generation, met to form the Constitution. They had just been indulging in a little direct action against England. They could have sent Members to Parliament up to now, and we would have still been British subjects. I don't know, as we would have been any worse off if we had been. But they got at it simply and directly and so they won our American independence. I don't know just when it was lost, but they won it. And the first thing they did was to have a constitution. You can't do anything without a constitution. You've got to have a good constitution to get anywhere. And so they got together a body of men, John Hancock, and some more penmen, and they wrote a constitution. Now, what is a constitution? Well, It's just the same, as if a boy twenty-one years of age would say, "'Well, now I have become of age, and I am wise, and I am going to write out a constitution to cover the rest of my life, and when I am forty, I can't do anything that is unconstitutional.'" There wasn't a railroad 125 years ago. There wasn't a steam engine. There wasn't a flying machine, of course, nor an automobile. Nobody knew anything about electricity except what came down from the clouds, and they were busy dodging it. There were few machines. There was just a body of farmers, that's all, and they wrote the Constitution, and there it is. It didn't apply to the industrial conditions of today, for they didn't know anything about industrial conditions of today, but they imagined that they were so wise that least people 125 years later should think they knew more. They would tie things up so that we could not make a fool of ourselves to the third or fourth generation after they were dead. And so they wrote down a constitution, which meant that whatever the American people wanted to do, a hundred or two hundred or five hundred years afterward, they could not do it unless it agreed with the constitution that had already been written down, or unless they changed it. Well now, that was a wise piece of business so far, wasn't it? but that is only the beginning of it. Then they organized this government into separate states. I don't know how many there are now. They are hatching some new ones all the while. But every state was independent in a way, and in a way it was united with all the rest. Nobody knows just how much independence there is and how much union there is. Nobody knows but the judges, and they only know in the particular case." They can say this goes or this does not go, nobody can tell until they get there. What comes within the State Province and what comes within the National Province nobody knows, nor ever did know. The States are individual and separate to make laws for themselves. Each one of them has a law factory of their own, and they are all busy, and the United States government has another big law factory and they have all been grinding out laws for a hundred years, and not only that, but the courts have been telling us what they mean and what they don't mean. So it has been pretty busy for the lawyer. Then they decide that they should have a Congress, which consisted of the Senate, where men were selected for six years, not by the people, but by the state legislatures, and a Congress where men were elected for two years by the people, But these congressmen elected for two years didn't take their seat for a year after they were elected, and time to forget all about the issue on which they were elected. And not satisfied with that, they had to have a Supreme Court to tell us what the Congress or the Senate meant, and the Supreme Court was appointed for life and not beholden to anybody, and they are generally about a hundred years old apiece. And then they had a President who was elected for four years, and who had a right to veto anything that Congress and the Senate saw fit to pass. And if he vetoed it, you could not pass it except by two-thirds majority of both houses. And there you have got it, so far as the United States government is concerned. But that is not nearly all. So if you want to pass some important law, let's see what you have to do. Of course, little laws don't count. FOR YOU CAN'T KEEP UP A FACTORY UNLESS YOU DO SOMETHING, PASS LAWS ONE YEAR, AND REPEAL THEM THE NEXT, OR SOMETHING LIKE THAT, TO SAVE THE JOB, BUT TAKE AN IMPORTANT THING, AN ISSUE COMING UP FROM THE PEOPLE, ONE ULTIMATELY MEANING THE TAKING OF THE EARTH, NOTHING ELSE IS IMPORTANT, IT MAY BE IN ONE FORM OR ANOTHER, BUT IT MUST HAVE THAT PURPOSE, OR IT WON'T BE IMPORTANT. "'because you can't regulate things "'that belong to other people very successfully. "'You have got to get it yourself. "'Now let's see what you have got to do. "'In the first place, you must elect a Congress, "'and the Congress does not take its seat "'for a year after they are elected, "'and then they run up against the United States Senate, "'holding six-year terms, "'and one-third of them passing away each two years. "'None of them elected, upon the issue upon which Congress was elected. Mostly old men, and generally rich men, rich enough to get the job. Now you have got to get the law through Congress, and through the Senate, both, which is well-nigh impossible, if it is a law of any consequence. And then here comes a President, who is elected by the people for four years, and he must sign it. And if Congress and the Senate, or the President, refuses, then you can't do it. "'excepting if the President refuses, "'then you have got to get two-thirds "'of both the Houses, "'which is impossible "'if the law amounts to anything, "'and then you have only begun. "'If you should happen to get "'all these three at once, "'which we never did and never will "'on anything very important, "'because the clause are all cut out of any bill "'before it ever gets very far, "'then you have only begun. "'Then here is this document, "'this sacred document, which came down from Mount Sinai one hundred and twenty-five years ago, the Constitution, and you lay down the law beside the Constitution to see whether it is unconstitutional or not. And, of course, you could not tell. You would not know anything about it. Congress could not tell. The Senate could not tell. The President could not tell. There is only one tribunal that could tell, and that is the Supreme Court, AND WHILE THE CONSTITUTION FILLS ABOUT TEN PAGES, THE INTERPRETATION OF THE CONSTITUTION WILL FILL A HUNDRED VOLUMES OR MORE, AND THE CONSTITUTION IS NOT WHAT IS WRITTEN IN TEN PAGES, BUT IT IS WHAT IS WRITTEN IN THE DECISION OF THE JUDGES, COVERING OVER A HUNDRED YEARS, AND THEY DON'T ALWAYS AGREE AT THAT, WHICH MAKES SOME OF THEM RIGHT. IF THEY ALL AGREED, PROBABLY, NONE OF THEM WOULD BE RIGHT. So if you should ever succeed in getting a law past Congress with its two-year term and the Senate with its six and the President with his four, any one of whom may block it and will, if it is important, then you have got to pass it to these wise judges, who are not elected at all, and who have no interest with the people, because they are holding their office for life, and they have been there so long and got so old that they don't understand any of the new questions anyhow and could not, and who have the conservatism of age anyway. And they have got to decide whether that law is constitutional or not. And before they have decided it, and before it has run the gauntlet of all of them, even if they decide it right, you would not need the law. The law would be dead. But you must combine on all of these four things before you can accomplish anything. And that is not all. Then you must decide whether the law is within the province of the state or the nation, and whether it is state business or whether it is national business. And most of our laws are state laws, and when we get back to the state we find the same old story. Wonderful Wisdom Here is first the Constitution, which is nothing except as I illustrate it. A boy twenty-one years old swears that he won't know any more when he is fifty and that kind of boy generally does not. And we have a legislative body to make laws, composed of a house and a senate. Two bodies, one not being wise enough to make them themselves. And we have a governor with a veto, and a supreme court to say whether the law is constitutional or not. The same thing in the state, and the same thing in the nation. Then we have got to see whether it is in the province of the nation, or the state. And, you see, it is next to impossible to ever get a constitutional law that amounts to anything, and we have never done it. But, they say, this is a country where people vote. If you don't like the law, why change it? If you didn't vote, there would be some excuse for direct action. But as long as you vote, you can change the law. The trouble is, you can't change it. You haven't got a chance. How can you change one of these laws that are important? How can you appeal to the people, first of all, and change it with the people? And next, how could you possibly elect a Congress and a Senate and a President and a Supreme Court all at once, that would ever make any substantial change, or ever did?" Well, they say, if the Constitution fetters you too much, why change the Constitution? The Constitution provides that it can be changed, and so it does. But how? You can change the Constitution of the United States. You could change Mount Hood, but it would take a pile of shovels. You could change Mount Hood a good deal easier. It could be done. The law provides that if you pass a law through Congress and the Senate, and it is signed by the President to change the Constitution, you may submit it to the people, and if three-fourths of all the states in the Union consent to it, why, you can change it. What do you think of that? Do you suppose there is any power on earth that could ever get a law through Congress and the Senate, approved by the Senate, and then get three-fourths of the individual states in the Union to approve it? You and your children, and your children's children, would die while you are doing it. The best proof of that is the fact that we have had a Constitution for 125 years, and the Lord knows it needs patching. It needs something worse. It needs abolishing worse than anything else. If anybody does want to tinker with voting, the first thing necessary is to get rid of the Constitution. We have had one for 125 years, with a provision for changing it. It has needed change. It needs it all the while. And yet, it has never been changed but once. They passed several amendments, all in a heap. What are those? They were amendments growing out of the Civil War, and they didn't permit any of the Southern States to vote. They just ran them over their heads, and they were all amendments protecting the Negroes after enfranchisement. And those are the only amendments we have had in 125 years, and it took a war to get those considerable direct action. Why, if a body of ingenuous men had gotten together to make the framework of a government to absolutely take from the people all the power they possibly could, they could not have contrived anything more mischievous and complete than our American form of government. Russia is easy and simple compared with this. If you did happen to get a progressive, kindly, sympathetic, humane czar, which you probably won't, but if you did, you could change all the laws of Russia, and you could change them right away and get something but if you got the wisest and kindest and most sympathetic man on earth at the head of our government, he could not do anything. Or if you filled Congress with them, they could not do anything. Or the Senate, they could not, and the Supreme Court could not. You would have to fill them all at once, and then they would have to override all the precedents of 125 years to accomplish it. The English government is simplicity itself compared to it. As compared with ours, it is as direct as a convention of the I-W-W. The English people elect a parliament, and when some demand comes up from the country for different legislation, which reaches parliament, and is strong enough to demand a division in parliament, and the old majority fails, parliament is dissolved at once, and you go right straight back to the people and elect a new Parliament upon that issue, and they go at once to Parliament and pass a law, and there is no power on earth that can stop them. The King hasn't any more to say about the laws of England, nor any more power than a floor manager of a charity ball would have to say about it. He is just an ornament, and not much of an ornament at that. The House of Lords is comparatively helpless, and they never had any constitution." There never was any power in England to set aside any law that the people made. It was the law, plain and direct and simple, and you might get somewhere with it. But we have built up a machine that destroys every person who undertakes to touch it. I don't know how you are ever going to remedy it. Nothing short of a political revolution, which would be about as complete as the deluge, could ever change our laws under our present system, in any important particular. But while anybody is voting, they had better vote the right way, if they can find it out. If they can't, it's just as well not to vote. They had better vote for some working man's candidate and be counted, as long as you are doing it. Still any benefit that must come anywhere in the near future must come some other way. Working men have not raised their wages by it, They haven't shortened their hours of toil by it. They haven't improved the conditions of life by it. It has all been done in some other way. All of this has been accomplished by trade unionism, by organization. If you can organize working men sufficiently so that they may make their demands strong enough, you can accomplish something in all these directions. But our political institutions are such that before you could get anything like a political revolution, you need an industrial revolution. And then we come to face some of the problems of today, and I want to speak a little bit about that. I have talked to you about as long as I ought to tonight, but I want to say something about some matters that perhaps are closer home than those. We find the American working man bound by the law, as I have said. "'everything taken from him. "'He can't do anything by voting. "'The courts are almost always against him "'for the simple reason that the courts are made from lawyers, "'generally prominent lawyers and well-known lawyers. "'In almost every instance, "'these lawyers have been corporation lawyers. "'Their instincts are that way, "'their beliefs are that way, "'and their training and heredity are that way, "'and they are not with the poor.' In order to be a lawyer, you must spend considerable time, if not studying, at least you must spend it not working. You can't work while you are becoming a lawyer, and you won't work afterwards. It takes eight or ten years schooling, at least." This is one reason why a lawyer says he should have big fees. It takes him so long to learn the trade. That is, the poor people support a lawyer so long, while he is preparing, that they ought to support him better while he is practicing, because a fellow studying to be a lawyer, or a doctor, or a minister, I don't know what they study to be a minister, but I suppose they do, has got to be living while he is studying, and somebody must take care of him, to take care of him while he is learning. After he gets it learned, he takes care of himself, so the judges are not on your side, they don't look at things the way you do. They are trained differently. If they were picked out of your trade councils, they would look at them differently, and they could decide cases differently. Everything is in habit, and the environment and the training, and they are all the time fashioning the law against you. Then what? Workingmen find themselves hedged about wherever they turn. They can't employ themselves. Someone has got the earth. They can't mine ore somebody owns it they can't get the steel to do the work with themselves they have got to buy it off somebody they can't do the work except for wages the employer does it and the employer insists upon open competition in labor and workingmen are constantly fighting each other everybody admits that the systems must change that the laws must change they can't change them by political action and the injustice goes on, and on, and on. They find children taken from school and put in factories and mills. Their children, not the children of the rich, but the children of the poor. The rich love their children so much that they don't put them in factories and mills. Only the children of the poor are put in factories and mills, which shows that mother-love is not the same with poor people as it is with rich people. Still, the poor people have all the children anyway, so there are enough. They are good to the rich, and they have the children for them. They find that life of a poor man is only about two-thirds as long as that of a rich man. A man dies because he is poor. A lawyer or preacher or a doctor can take care of himself, but the working man dies because he is poor lots of gray-headed lawyers and preachers and bankers and doctors, but there are not so very many gray-haired working men. That is lucky for them, too, because they would have to go to the poorhouse. Maybe they will get old-age pensions sometimes. It is always safe and economical to give working men old-age pensions, because they never reach old age. They find themselves ground up by all kinds of machinery, Ground to death under car wheels, sawed to pieces in factories and mills, falling from ten- and twelve-story buildings, picked up on the ground just one big splatter of blood and bones. They know these conditions are wrong, and they can't change them, and the people who have control of it are squeezing them tighter and tighter all the time, and they don't know which way to turn. And which way do they turn? They try voting. They don't accomplish it. They try organization, and that is hard. They try direct action, and that is hard, too. You wonder that they try it." Now, a great many people condemned the McNamaras. A great many working people condemned them. I don't say that the working people ever need to resort to force, or ever should resort to force. But it is not for me to condemn anybody who believes they should. I know that the progress of the human race is one long bloody story of force and violence, and from the time man got up on his hind legs and looked the world in the face, he has been fighting and fighting and fighting for all the liberty and the opportunity that he has had. I think the time will come when he can stop. Perhaps it has come, and no one hates cruelty and force and violence more than I hate it but don't let them ever tell you that all the force has been on our side. It never has been. Most of it has been with them. They are the ones who have the force, who have the power. Why are these standing armies and navies, and more than that, the militia, building their armories in every great city in the United States? Are they there for a foreign foe, or are they there to shoot strikers and workingmen? "'when the time shall come. "'Are they there to protect the people "'from China and Japan and England, "'or are they there to protect property "'against the poor? "'What is a lockout in a factory or a mill "'when they call it famine and want "'and hunger and cold to do their work? "'Is that force, or is it peace "'and quietness and gentleness "'and the golden rule? "'What are the policemen? "'What are the officers of law?' What is the machinery of government directed against the working man, holding all the resources of the earth in the power of a few, and compelling the money to go to those few for the means of life? Isn't this force? What is the blacklist? Is it anything but force that drives children into the factories, that drives women into the factories, and compels men to work with defective machinery for long hours and poor wages? Is it anything but the force of starvation and want that has always been used by the owners of the earth to make the poor do their bidding and their will? The force is there. It is not with the weak. The weak have never had the strength or the opportunity to use the force. And when, here and there, some man like the McNamaras and others, I don't need to mention them alone, excepting that I want to live to see the day that justice will be done to them. Here and there, when they reach out blindly to meet force with force, call it blind if you will, call it wrong if you will, I have never counseled or advised it, perhaps because I am not brave enough. It is not for me to say, but call it blind, call it mistaken, call it what you will. But the fact will ever remain that men who do it never do it for their own mean personal ends, but because they love their fellow-men. And long ago it was written down that greater love hath no man than this, that he who would give his life for his friend. Some day, I say, it will be understood, and some day the world will understand that they and Wood, who was indicted from the other side, for an attempt to charge something to labor that labor was not guilty of, and all of these other indictments growing out of the same acts, that all of these acts were not individual acts at all, but they were part of a great industrial tragedy, of a great evolution of society. They are what are called social crimes, or social acts, for which these men were responsible in no degree. They were a part of a machine. They were risking their lives, a part of a system, and, do what you will, Others will be ground out of it forever and forever until the system shall change and until there will be some equity and justice in the world. The world is changing and every person is doing his part in his own way. It is not for you to criticize me or for me to criticize you but to judge men by their motives and to judge them by the side they are on. Labor must stand for its own men. It must stand even for its own mistakes, and its own crimes, if it is guilty of them. There is one question, and only one, to ask concerning a man, or concerning an act. Was he on my side? You may counsel him to do differently, yes. You may teach him moderation, and believe in it. And all of us want to see peace and justice and harmony come out of all of these contending forces as it one day will come. You may teach it, and you may believe it, but the man who lets a thought loose in the universe can never tell what the results of that thought may be. It may bear fruit in a thousand ways of which we never dream, but even though it does, and it must, the thought must go forth to do its work, and to change the face of the earth. The highest and the holiest and the best thought may bring on strife and war." And John Brown, a devoted man, who believed in the liberty of the slaves, took his gun in his hand and went to Virginia and raised his hand in rebellion against the country. He was tried and convicted and hanged for murder, and he was guilty of murder under the laws of man, but under the laws of God he was a hero. The laws of justice and righteousness look not to the act, but they look at the motive that moved the brain. Were they fighting on our side? Were they fighting for justice and humanity and the weak and the poor and the oppressed as they saw it? If so, whoever they are and whatever, they demand our sympathy and our support. John Brown, by his act of heroism, plunged the United States into a civil war, costing hundreds of thousands of lives and billions of property. But he was not responsible for the thought. It came in the evolution of time. And so don't think that any one man is responsible for any one great event in the world. The earth is moving. The universe is working. All the laws of creation are working towards justice, toward a better humanity, toward a higher ideal, toward a time when men will be brothers the world over. The evolution will not all be peaceful. It can't be. There will be conflict and bloodshed, There will be prisons, there will be jails. But through it all, the same humanity that has come onward and upward, from the brute below us, onward and upward, to where we are today, this same humanity will be growing in wisdom and strength and righteousness, and the good and the evil, the peace and the charity, the violence and all, will be combined to make men better and make the world juster and fairer than it has ever been before. At the conclusion of the address of Mr. Darrow, at the suggestion of a member of the audience, three lusty cheers were given for the speaker. End of Part 2 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Real Medina, Texas End of Industrial Conspiracies by Clarence S. Darrow